Hello, and welcome to the Project Good podcast. I'm your host, Anne-Marie Hilton. Project Good is a social impact podcast interviewing experts and advocates about the pressing problems that we face globally and hearing how they suggest we move forward in the future. The Project Good podcast is brought to you by Project Good Work. The goal of this podcast is to inspire people and organizations to develop a mindset that can move others to positive action regarding the complex social issues facing people and the planet. For May, we're focusing on voter suppression. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing attorney, advocate, and activist, Aklima Kondoker. She currently holds the position of Chief Legal Officer at the New Georgia Project, an organization focused on voter registration and advocacy. Ms. Kondoker has spent most of her legal career making sure others get a fair shot. She has pushed for women's reproductive freedom, LGBTQ rights, racial justice, and voting rights. Ms. Kondoker honed her voting rights skills at the ACLU of Georgia, where she created the Voting Access Project, a program that blends grassroots organizing, policy, and litigation to improve and expand across the access to the ballots. She later served as the Georgia Director of All Voting is Local, a campaign of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Let's get into the interview. Before she became the Chief Legal Officer for the New Georgia Project, Aklima Kondoker was Staff Attorney and Senior Manager for the Voting Access Project at the ACLU of Georgia. It was a project created and designed to open pathways to the ballot. While at the ACLU of Georgia, she focused on First and Fourth Amendment issues, women's reproductive freedoms, and voting rights. Her voting rights work in Georgia includes litigation and advocacy. She has been involved in the development and execution of voting rights that has included crafting policy and regulatory proposals, partnership development, monitoring local election boards, and successfully advocating for voting sites. During the 2020 election cycle in Georgia, Ms. Kondoker worked to expand voting access statewide, including adding ballot drop boxes, opening early voting sites in communities of color, and advocating for ballot access expansion through elective election administration at both the state and county level. Ms. Kondoker holds a degree in psychology from Stony Brook University and a law degree from John Marshall Law School in Atlanta. She's committed to local and national initiatives that serve both the community and gives everyone a voice through their vote. Welcome, Ms. Kondoger. Before we get into the questions, um, what inspired you to become an attorney uh, focused on voter rights? So thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited for this conversation and for the great work that you all are doing, um, especially through this podcast. So my voting rights and advocacy journey started uh, back in New York, where I hail from. I worked as a crisis intervention counselor, where I answered the National Suicide Hotline. We also answered the Middle Earth Hotline and served as a baby safe haven. In my work there, I mainly heard issues from women who were fighting fighting through domestic issues and other civil and human rights violations. I could help people with their immediate crisis, whether it was self-harm, whether it was suicide, I was able to help get folks off of the ledge. But the bigger issue that I could never touch were these larger issues, these systems of oppression through the law that kept people from realizing their full dignity and humanity. This is what pushed me to pursue a career in law. And this is what also pushed me to come to Atlanta. So not only am I you know, considerably devoted to this type of work, my mother also happened to move to Georgia and I'm a mama's girl, so I followed her <laughs> down. Mm -hmm because that's where my heart is. And in doing so, 
I pursued a career in public interest because I felt like that was the best pathway to elevate the voices of those who were unheard and were disproportionately harmed by systems of oppression and suppression across our nation, but particularly in Georgia. So I started working at the ACLU of Georgia, handling women's reproductive rights issues and a plethora of other issues that the ACLU covers. But what became most apparent to me are the issues surrounding voting rights and access to the ballot, because all of those women's rights issues that um, inspired my work to become an attorney actually came from access to the ballot box, the strength and power of your community and how you can stand up for what is meaningful change for you comes from your elected officials, comes from policy, comes from your legislature. And if you don't have access to the ballot, you don't have access to that type of change. And so I became a lawyer because I felt like the courts were the pro were the appropriate was the appropriate space to begin to dig into these issues and find solutions with long-term impact but then found my way into the voting rights world because that is the space in which all of our fundamental rights rely without the right to vote you do not have the capacity for change and so this is why my work has centered on both the law advocacy strategies but also voting rights within the community now that's uh, um, that leads me, I guess, to the like first question because um, you know what you have uh, explained in in your journey as um, in developing your career, as I didn't even um, know actually that the ACLU was dealing with um, so many issues to the point of uh, you know when you were talking about uh, you know taking people literally off the, the ledge of um, you know uh, uh, being uh, done with uh, everything. Um, you know, uh, uh, yes, the like the vote is, I guess, the the, the key. Um, but right now, or I think it's been not even just right now, but it's been for um, some time in uh, just in through America, and I think just even um, other people in the world even feel this that a lot of people feel that their votes don't matter. Um, so. Um, I guess, how do you uh, start to make people feel that their vote does make a difference? So number one, for those who feel that way, I, I want to let them know that they are heard, that they have every right to feel that way. And the reason why they have every right to feel that way is because we cannot ignore the history of democracy in this country. We cannot ignore the fight that people have um, considerably waded through to find their way towards access to democracy. We cannot ignore that. We know that for black, brown, immigrant, indigenous women communities, that the right to vote has been untenable for them just throughout our history of our democracy. So number one, I hear you and I understand why you believe and feel that you're right, or rather that your vote doesn't count. However, that being said, your right to vote does matter. Your right to vote is fundamental to change within your community. So though you may feel like your right doesn't carry, that your vote doesn't carry much weight, that right to vote does carry weight. So what should bring you to the ballot box, what should determine 
who you vote for and how you vote should come from your principles, from your community. What I talked about when we first started this conversation is I worked as a crisis intervention counselor and I mainly focused in on women's issues. So what drove me to do this work was a position of power for women, wanting to make sure that women and females had autonomy and dignity within their bodies and within the social structure of this country. That's what was important to me. And regardless of how I had felt marginalized as a person of color, as someone who come from, comes from immigrant parents, and understanding that, you know, even if I show up to vote, my vote may not count because there are so many barriers to that. I understood that the weight and value of my right to vote still matters. And there's a reason why it's so difficult and challenging for someone like me to vote. It's because that right to vote has power, because that right to vote can inspire change. So for those of us who feel a bit apathetic, feel a bit beaten down, feel like there's no point to it all, please understand that your feelings are valid, but notwithstanding the validity of those feelings, the power of your vote still counts and that right is powerful. So please do exercise it because it is through that right to vote that we can begin to see change. And the more of us who mobilize and show up to the ballot box, the more difficult it will be for others to ignore us. So certainly show up to vote. Even if you don't believe that it's going to make a difference, even if you think, oh, things are going to go along the way they always have, you have an issue that matters to you. You have people in your community whose life and dignity matter to you. Show up for them and bring other people that you care about to show up with you because together we can inspire change. Yes. Um, one of the things I always, uh, you know, I actually was not uh, born in the U.S. Um, and uh, came here. I came here when I was uh, young. Um, but I think a lot of people in the U.S. don't realize, you know, um, what it is, what a privilege it is to be able to actually have a voice um, in their in their government. And um, they take it for uh, they take it, um, you know, they just uh, dismiss that and. Um, yeah, people don't realize how lucky they are here. Um, one of the things in talking about voter um, suppression that I wanted to uh, bring up, and I think it uh, introduces the conversation and um, will allow us to get deeper, is that um, uh, one of the hallmark cases is the Shelby County versus Holder case. I think that um, that case has, of course, put um, everything in perspective when it comes to um, voter rights. Uh, would you mind explaining, since you are, of course, the attorney and I'm <laughs> at the house, <laughs> of how um, the Shelby County versus uh, Holder case uh, puts the Voting Rights Act in danger? Certainly. So to have a quick, uh, by way of quick background and primer, so the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and in particular, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, is the most powerful tool that we have from the federal government to protect against disenfranchisement, in particular in communities of color. So what the Voting Rights Act of 1965 does and says is that you cannot discriminate against people of color when it comes to voting. And not only that, you cannot install systems and practices that would make it more difficult or disproportionately more harmful for communities of color to access the ballot. And the way that uh, Section 2 originally did this was through the preclearance requirement under Section 5. And what that preclearance requirement says is that uh, uh, states with a history of discrimination, particularly the southern states who have disproportionately marginalized and kicked people of color out of the ballot, 
are required to pre-clear or to get approval from the federal government, rather the Department of Justice, whenever they decide to install any significant election changes. By significant election changes, we're talking about voter ID requirements, absentee ballot request requirements, um, and indeed polling place moves and changes. Things like that would have to go to the Department of Justice to ensure that people of color were not disproportionately impacted or would be disenfranchised by those types of changes. Because again, history is our guide and the history of this nation, the true history of this nation has demonstrated that people of color has have disproportionately been impacted by systematic racism and systemic racism to make it more difficult to access the ballot. With the Shelby v. Holder decision, skip ahead to 2013, our Supreme Court essentially decided that that preclearance requirement was no longer a thing that we had to abide. And that's because, in their wisdom, they believed that, well, racism is no longer a thing, <laughs> particularly <laughs> in these southern states. So we don't have to apply additional scrutiny for these election changes. They instead said, well, you know what? It's up to the state to decide how they want to manage their elections. They don't need additional oversight from the federal government. Sure. Let loose. Go wild. So what happened? These southern states, including Georgia, where I am at, they let loose and went wild. And we have seen this with voter ID requirement changes, particularly in Texas and Arizona, making it more difficult for folks to uh, register to vote or to get their absentee ballot, in particular people who are uh, trans folks who may have their gender identity not match what's on their ID. So we know that these are painful things that make it more difficult for that community to vote. But we also understand here in Georgia, the meaningful changes that that has meant for voters is since the Shelby v. Holder decision came down, over 200 voting sites have been closed across the state of Georgia. And hmm. these sites have been predominantly in black and brown communities. What does that mean in a real world, in, in, in a real world view? That means that if you are living in a community where let's say you have 10 voting sites that's available, your county may decide to consolidate most of those sites to only have one place for you to vote. And if you have one place for you to vote in your community of let's say 100,000 or so, it is untenable and really impossible for the board of elections to be able to accommodate all of the voters at that particular location. And if that is the case, that's going to mean that that's gonna be a barrier to people to show up to vote. Let's be clear about what I'm trying to lay out here. Let's say you show up to the drive-through. You want to get yourself a sandwich, something quick to eat. If that line wraps around the block and you're there for quick and efficient and affordable food, you will likely get off of that line because your choice is going to be, well, do I give up two hours of my time to get this fast food that I need because I'm hungry? Or do I go off and do something else because I got to pick up my kids, I got to go do dry cleaning, I got to do other things? Same thing goes with that Shelby v. Holder decision. By making, making it easier for states to shut down polling sites, to erect barriers to the ballot, you are essentially saying to people, we are going to make it more difficult for you to vote and put you in the 
undesirable and unfair position to choose between either your right to vote or your humanity, tending to your family, going to work, going to school, all of these other things that are built into the way a person lives. They now have to make that very hard decision because now it is up to the states to choose whether and when a person can equitably access the ballot without oversight from the federal government. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Um, I have so much I'm, uh, that's uh, twirling in my mind of, um, you know, after this decision, it was, you know, well, 2020 was, I guess, a year we will all remember. Um, and obviously, it was an election year. Um, do you think that this, um, all of these changes, it's really about winning? Is it really a, a Republican versus a Democrat issue? Or do you believe it's... Uh, um, even deeper than that, um, I guess, uh, if we look at it, uh, do you think it's just a winning about winning? Mm. So I don't think it is just about winning. I think that if we say that we are ignoring the tumultuous and racist history that this country is born from, let's be clear. Voting rights and the civil rights movement has never ceased to be. It's something that has always been ongoing in the fabric of our society. So when the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed, let's be clear, this was on the heels of Bloody Sunday, where people were dragged and beaten bloody as they were crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Let's be clear that this comes prior to that from a history of Jim Crow laws that have segregated communities, from a history of Black folks being lynched, being pulled from voting sites, having dogs unleashed, and having hoses drag them into the streets. Let's be clear that from that history, the continuation that we have seen from 1965 to now is this fight to make it more difficult for people's voices to be heard at the ballot box. And again, this takes me back to this idea of empowerment that we talked about at the very beginning of this conversation. Your right to vote, that inherent right, gives you power. And the reason why people have had to march, sit, stand and bleed and die for this right is because within that power is the power to change. And I think it stretches far beyond partisanship and goes to the fabric of change within this country and for our democracy. So it is not just a matter of partisanship, though I think that is a very important piece to uplift, but I think we should never lose sight of the history of where we're coming from, regardless of what people want to say about critical race theory, which is a whole other thing. <laughs> but let's be clear mm -hmm. that we cannot ignore our tumultuous and racist past because it is also our present. And we know that understanding this past is what's going to mobilize us to do more in the future. So this momentum is a renewed momentum, but it is not a new momentum. It's something that we've always had in our history and we've never stopped this fight for voting rights. Hmm. Now, I guess one of the things, if uh, we're looking at this and uh, voter suppression as a, uh, uh, essentially a, a fight for equality, um, which is the, you know, the supposed to be the foundation of our um, democracy. 
Um, would you say then um, with all of these states, because I, I forget, um, you know, I'm sure the number has uh, changed since the last time I looked, but as soon it was like, um, I felt uh, when I was reading that all the states, they were like, you know, on their, their toes, just waiting for this uh, Supreme Court des uh, decision to just, you know, unleash everything that they could, they could think of. Um, which is scary because then we have to, you know, um, really look at the the people that you know we have we we put in charge. Um, do you think that our democracy is in uh, in danger currently? Absolutely, we we are um, at a crisis point, but I think we're also at a at a point for opportunity as well. Um, as a lawyer and also as a Libra, I like to balance <laughs> much of what we are talking about and thinking through. So yes, we are at a, a constitutional and uh, and a uh, democratic crisis. We're at this point where folks are very concerned and rightfully so about the fabric of our democracy. But we're also at a place where we have tremendous opportunities. So we have seen activism, protests, and really grassroots mobilization efforts turn out voters in numbers that we haven't seen before. So here in the state of Georgia, turnout among Black and Brown and immigrant voters over 2020 was historic. Whether it's from absentee voting, early voting, across the board, people showed up and showed out to speak about the issues that were important to them. When people vote, they are speaking, and the people have spoken. They said that Biden is their choice. They said that the principles that this administration is spouses represents them. And that is what speaks the loudest to me. So aside from the fact that there are these paltry attempts to continue to dismantle our democracy, let's give credence to that. Let's understand that that's a real thing. Let's not gaslight anybody who is concerned over that because it is real. But along with that reality is tremendous opportunity. And I think we have seized on those opportunities from 2020 and before then, but certainly up until today. So many young organizers and activists who take to the streets, who tell people, you know, from, from the ground to the heavens, those, those issues that are important to them, LGBT, LGBTQ plus issues, living wage issues, Medicare expansion, healthcare for all, autonomy and dignity for women's bodies, um, legal justice reform, all of these things, racial justice issues, all of these things have come from our youth movement, from our activist movement that has just flourished into something beautiful that we've seen nationwide, not just in the state of Georgia. So for folks who are concerned, yes, this is a part of trying to dismantle our democracy. Make no mistake about that. But that gives us an opportunity to stand up, to fight back, and to make sure that our voices are heard now louder than they ever have been before. Yes, you, I guess with the, you give me hope, <laughs> um, especially that you're working at the uh, New Georgia Project. And I feel that you are in, um, uh, I guess you would, you'd say the, 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 um, the, the ground, uh, the starting point of um, all of these uh, issues um, because of the, you know, historical significance, obviously, of uh, the city of Atlanta and Georgia and all the things that um, happened um, during the, uh, you know, um, the 60s um, period. Um, so right now, as I, as, um, you know, uh, an outsider, not necessarily um, an activist, but um, 
uh, I guess just as a, a fellow American, I feel that we are in this time of a different type of um, 1960s. Um, it's, uh, you know, because of course we have, um, it's kind of a, I guess um, if I'm going to make up a term, uh, a global 1960s movement, hmm. um, which is, uh, and the reason I'm saying that is that um, obviously every uh, everyone uh, remembers the history of the 60s. If it was mostly an American thing, and you know, people from the outside that weren't Americans were looking in, like, oh my goodness, like, wow. Um, well, I think the world always sees Americans as a little bit uh, wild. We are the, you know, the cowboys, the wild, wild <laughs> west, anyways. <laughs> um, but uh, the difference right now is I see it is the the global 1960s because of everything that happened in 2020 it isn't just here in the US like everyone's been taking a stand and there are you know um, uh, uh, you know protests and everything looking uh, uh, at everything that we have um, you know I will say set as our uh, standard um, in our lives, everything is being um, examined uh, across the globe. And this is the first time, at least that I know of, that um, the world has really started to um, look at uh, what it means to be, um, even though we're not technically minorities globally, what it means to be a minority <laughs> or, mm -hmm. or that mind frame that we've uh, um, you know, put in our heads of what it means to be um, not white or um, you know, um, uh, yeah, I will say, I guess not white. Um, cause mm -hmm. I, you know, if we, if we, if we're honest, um, my, what we call minorities are actually the global majority. Yeah. <laughs> but so, um, which is a twist. I think a lot of people, you know, unfortunately have been like, uh, you know, indoctrinated to think differently. It's mm -hmm. wild. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, what I believe, um, this is just my my theory, but I'm, I'm sure other people um, think of it um, similarly, is that a lot of this, um, when we go back to Obama, do you believe that all of this stuff that we have, like all of this is uh, the, the issues, obviously we can't, you know, uh, think about the pandemic because, you know, we didn't know that was going to happen. But do you think all of these issues that are erupting are a, a form of backlash from the Obama era? I would certainly call it a white lash. I think that is the clearest way to define it, because unfortunately, what we saw with um, Obama's tenure is a lot of people being very upset about every single proposal that he introduced, every single bit of change that he tried to install in our democracy, within our systems was a struggle and was a fight. And it was an ideological fight. It was a fight against progress. That is how I understand it. And I think that for those of us with eyes open, that's the way to see it. And if we were to consider any other administration, to, to your point about what it means to be a minority, I think it's, it's also what it means to be unconventional in whatever the wisdom of the fabric of this democracy means to folks. It's something that fluctuates and has changed over time. But let's be clear, an unconventional thinker like Obama and those who are interested in progress and in having our society reflect the people within it are met with um, derision, are met with violence, and are often met without sympathy. And I think that is the biggest takeaway from an administration like, like, like the Obama administration, and not just his, but any other 
faction that tries to push for change to be more reflective of present day, of our communities, of our, our modern day existence is met with a fight. And I understand this is a, this is a, this humans, a lot of humans are afraid of change. Let's be clear. Mm -hmm. um, I know folks that don't want to leave their city, don't want to leave their town. Heck, they don't want to change the way they wear their clothes. They want their slacks to be pleated in this particular way to feel safe. I get it. Change can be very scary, particularly if that change means uprooting systems of power. And let's be clear, that's what Obama's administration represented. Up until his time, we all of our presidents were white males and period. There was nothing else within the history of America. So to have somebody who's biracial presenting black as our president, that is something that uprooted a lot of people's psychology, that, meant, that made a lot of people feel uncomfortable. But again, these are people who wear pleated pants who do not want to wear any other outfit. So <laughs> I think of it that way. If you think of it like this is just change, change that needs to coincide with the time. That's what we are talking about. It makes you uncomfortable, yes. It's different, yes. It also uproots systems of power, also true, but it does not, for example, dehumanize anybody to say all of us uh, bl black people matter. It doesn't dehumanize anybody to say LGBTQ plus people and women are people and are deserving of dignity and humanity. It doesn't do that to say that and put those type of policies at the forefront. And I think that's how we ought to think about it when we hear about divisive uh, po po politics, when we hear about, um, you know, saying with the understanding that Obama's presidency and what came after that resulted in a white lash. We ought to understand that that has to do with, yes, this person's Obama's uh, ethnicity, but it mainly has to do with change because that is a symbolism behind that administration. That is why we are at this place where we are right now, where it looked like we had momentum moving forward. And then with, uh, you know, 45, that certainly changes the landscape of our country afterward because folks are very resistant to change. Now, uh, you know, I was I was thinking as you were saying change because, you know, that was like uh, Obama's like uh, theme during his campaign. <laughs> he said it straight out <laughs> before he started. <laughs> yep. um, and um, and I guess people didn't believe him. <laughs> <laughs> I was like thinking about the poster. Right. <laughs> you were talking. I was like, that's true. He did say that. Yes, he that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so you're right. People are resistant to change in all, um, you know, all uh, parts of their lives um, because, uh, you know, for, you know, everyone, I guess, uh, or well, I guess some people love it, um, uh, change is scary. Um, so one of the things too, with all of this, um, with all these, uh, changes, or I guess, uh, maybe not necessary changes, but push for changes, I guess, where do you see, um, or how do you see, I guess, this, this turning out? Um, I know it's hard for you, of course, to predict the future, but, um, in, I guess you would say in the, uh, from what you've seen since you're on, on the ground, seeing, um, you know, people's reactions, do you see um, that there will be major shifts um, happening in a lot of areas or just a, a, a few areas? I guess we'll look at um, from 
um, you know, since we're talking about voters suppression, do you think that um, right now, since you are, uh, you know, uh, with the the New Georgia project and 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 fighting the changes that are unjust, do you think that people are going to wake up and say, okay, um, you know, what we're doing is is wrong, and that everybody in this democracy, um, you know, deserves a voice, or do you think that it's just going to continue to uh, push? Americans into the different uh, fractions, like, you know, you believe this, I believe that, and it just is what it is? Or do you think that um, eventually people will just be like, okay, we didn't like change um, at the beginning, but we we realize that, you know, um, for the greater good, that, you know, we have to move towards unity? I guess, what do you see? I know this is a big question. It's it's a big question, but it's a great question. And I think unity is the only path forward. I think that is where humanity is headed. That's where we're all headed. If we just think about um, systems in the media, for example, that were resistant to change. Folks were not interested in television boxes. They were they were reluctant for that change. They liked to receive their news and their music and all information via radio. And then television came along. So many people didn't want to have them in their homes. Now we're streaming things on our phones and on our laptops. We carry TV in our pockets. So change will happen. And I think that the world will adjust certainly the nation will adjust to that change. It will certainly take time. I, I will not venture to say, you know, between this year and next year, or even within my lifetime that we will see it. But I will say that change will come so long as we continue to believe in what we are in what we believe in and what is right in progressive and good change for our communities. And so long as we continue to bind together and not allow things like disinformation and discord to make us feel like we are disempowered or like we don't belong. So no matter what, regardless of, of where you are on the political spectrum, regardless of what you believe in, just know that there are voices here, voices of a new generation. We are now in, oh my goodness, that's right, it's 2022. So there are <laughs> folks who newly are 17 and a half, newly 18, who are going to be voting for this for the first time. Their interests and beliefs are very different from folks who were born in the 1900s. I can't believe I'm saying that, but correct. Their views are different, and those folks are the ones that are inheriting our democracy, and they are inheriting this nation. We're leaving it to them. And those folks, the majority of them, are welcoming. They're trans, they're gay, they're lesbians, they're women, they're Black, they're immigrants, they speak other languages, they're AAPI people. These are the folks that are lifting up this better world that we all want to live in. And those are going to be the folks that are going to be pushing this change because they deserve to have a world that's representative of who they are, not who I am, not who anybody who's been, you know, sitting in their uh, comfortable congressional seat for decades, not any of those folks. They're not the ones that are going to make the determinations of our future. Our people who are in this world today, 17 and a half to 18, and I pull that out because y'all are eligible to register to vote. <laughs> Y'all are eligible to show up at the ballot box now. So you can have your say on what's important. Do you have too much college, de college debt? Do you want to make sure that Biden actually makes good on canceling student loan debt? 
if that matters to you, you need to show up to that ballot box and tell them that it matters to you because this is how we will affect change. Now, I can't promise that you'll see it next year or that you'll see it in the next few years, but I can certainly promise you that this change is going to come because Ain't nobody out here listening to radios anymore like we used to. We're not out here with record players. We have TVs in our pockets. And guess what? It took us a while to get here, but people certainly didn't want to see that when it was first introduced. So know that it takes some time, but it's well worth it to do it, and we can get there together. Yes, I think, um, I think you know, I'm just going to say a, a statement, um, but I think, you know, uh, obviously we've went through trauma and usually uh, this is from like a, if you're, if people do therapy, when, a, when you go through trauma, it's the time for, uh, you know, to make major, major changes. Um, and I think right now, uh, you can, you know, tell me if you're in agreement or not, that right now is the the ripe time or the right time um, to make these changes because of everything that we have went through. Would you agree or disagree? Um, and, and the reason I'm asking that is, you know, initially when all of this stuff unfolded and what I'm talking about is the whole uh, 2020 pandemic and all the, the stuff that uh, started happening uh, because of it, I was thinking, well, goodness, gracious we're going to a pandemic people isn't that enough <laughs> and then and then all these things and i'm like now people are in the streets now i'm like oh my gosh and i'm sure other people felt like that they were like you know goodness gracious like you know like mm -hmm. uh, everybody calm calm down so i was thinking is this the right time for us to push for changes when we were already going through so much what i would say trauma because you know we were we were locked up Right. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Now is the time for change. Now is always the time for change, the, the perpetual now. And I say that because the earlier you start to change things, the more likely you are to see those changes in your lifetime. So it's going to be hard and challenges are just going to be added to the already long list of challenges. Let's be clear that the pandemic it is something of historical significance. We know from just the history of humanity that we were actually due for such an event and it happened when it happened. And let's also be clear that global warming is something that we've known about for a very long time. So things like wildfires in California and the rainforest being on fire and all of these huge environmental events were also things that we knew were brewing in the background. So to some degree, we understand that, well, these are things that we could not have planned for, but let's also be clear about the insurrectionists that we saw on January 6, 2020. We knew about them already because we have heard what Trump supporters sound like. We have seen them. But also white supremacy is also something that's not new to the history of America. So we knew that too. So to some extent, we know the hurdles, the very high hurdles that we are up against. And even when things are compounded, when it's made worse, because 2020 hit a lot of people by surprise. So don't get me wrong. There was no way to plan it. There was no way to plan that I'm not going to be going into work anymore. And if I have kids, I now have to figure out how to homeschool kids and, and be with my spouse 24-7 when I don't know if I really like them. We didn't know that we were going to be facing that over 2020. But the thing that made 2020 remarkable is people still showed up to fight back against injustice, regardless of the conditions. So where we see things like January 6th, where we experience things like 
the pandemic and the environmental injustices that continue to plague our world, we also saw people say, you know what, I'm going to walk out of this door. I'm going to carry this sign. I'm going to go to this ballot box. I'm going to show up for what I believe in because that's the only way to, to affect change. I can't wait for the wildfires to stop. I can't wait for white supremacists to get it through their heads that we belong here. I can't wait for another moment to pass without people understanding that Black lives matter. They need to know that now. People need to know from right now that black bodies matter. You cannot indiscriminately kill because you think you have the right to because you wear a badge, because you are shielded from the law in one respect or another. And there is no better time to do that from, than now, regardless of how hard it was. To look back at our history, the civil rights movement during that time, people had to deal with segregation. People had to deal with having to go to different fire hydrants. People had to deal with not being able to work a particular job or sit at a particular counter because of their color. And in dealing with that, those people still showed up to the ballot box. They still marched. They still protest. They still worked through systematic violence and racism throughout their history. And so with these unique challenges of our modern day era, it is incumbent on all of us to seize on the now, to, to take a piece of what um, John Lewis has said, if not, if not us, then who? If not now, then when? So it must be now. Now is when we get up and fight, regardless of the challenges ahead of us, they will always be ahead of us. And for those of us who are interested in video games, this is about world building, right? It doesn't matter how many times you have failed or lost or how many lives you have left, you get back into the game, regardless of how far that journey is, you get back and you play and you play to win. Yes, I have to say, yay! I agree. <laughs> Let's go out there and play and win, everyone. We all we all need to be um, players in our own lives and players in the world because you know that's where we're in charge of. Um, now, and to go to towards a uh, hopefully a hopeful state or a positive state. Um, uh, right now, they've uh, they're uh, they've passed the Freedom to Vote Act. Um, how do you believe that this will support voters? So the Freedom to Vote Act is just one measure to make it easier for people to vote. So what the Freedom to Vote Act should do is it should expand voter registration, so allow for automatic same-day registration. And to be clear, what it actually does is it provides a baseline for all of our states to follow. So it also makes voting access to so vote by mail more accessible, and it limits removing voters from voter rolls. And it also makes election day a federal holiday. Those are amazing provisions to reduce these high hurdles to the ballot. With that, what we hope is that states will stop implementing new laws to make it more difficult for people to vote because they will not be able to do that under federal law. The goal here is to make it more achievable for everybody to have equitable, fear, uh, free and fair access to the ballot, free from fear. Let's just be clear on that. Unfortunately, what we've seen come out of a state like Georgia, SB 202, and a newly introduced bill this year known as HB 1464, that endeavors to make it more difficult for people to vote. So a lot of the things I talked about, unfortunately, these two uh, bills, actually SB 202 is now law, HB 1464 is a bill. They 
have restrictions for when a person can request their absentee ballot. Here in Georgia, prior to 2021, you had 180 days to request and send back your ballot. Since SB 202 was made law last year, now you it's chopped down to 77 days for that process. Now, if you have less time in order to request your absentee ballot, you are now less likely to vote absentee. And if you are someone who works out of state or works a traveling job and does not really have a point of reference to be able to stop and go to a voting site, it's more difficult for you to access the ballot. So having the Freedom to Vote Act in place will make it easier for people to have vote by mail and have access to early voting. I mentioned before that the Shelby v. Holder decision um, really chopped down the amount of voting sites that we had across the state of Georgia. Indeed, under SB 202, because we did not have that preclearance requirement in place, the state of Georgia had also determined that drop boxes, free and available way to deliver your absentee ballot were now reduced. The recommendation by the federal government, the EAC commission recommended one per 18,000 or 20,000 voters. The state of Georgia said one per 100,000 voters or one per every early vote site, whichever is less. So I, I provided the stat, over 200 voting sites have closed across the state. So that means you want to also reduce the amount of drop boxes, i.e. less opportunity for people to vote absentee, less option to vote. And then now you want to also put any existing drop boxes inside of an early vote site. Early vote sites, for folks who don't know, have limited operating hours, usually between the hours of eight to five. If you are a working person, an hourly wage, worker who works regular business hours, those are usually the hours of eight to five. So you don't have access to early voting. And here in this country, we know that November is that November, that Tuesday in November is your opportunity to vote. But that is also a weekday. And that is when you have to be at work. So having the Freedom to Vote Act in place would also mean that that Tuesday would be a federal holiday, which means you likely will not have to work, which means you can now assess your time and devote your time to participating in our democracy. So what I hope that I showcased here, hopefully with not too much confusion, is how the Freedom to Vote Act would provide cover for states like Georgia that seek to dismantle access to the ballot, that seek to make it more difficult for people to vote, with a standard for each and every state to follow to make sure that more more people have equitable, free, and available ballot to, uh, access to the ballot. Yes, I think you've definitely um, shown that. Um, yeah, so one of the other things um, that I wanted to bring up, um, uh, just for uh, voters, one of the things, I, this is just kind of an aside that I always, um, it always uh, kind of perplexes me, is that some states, um, and I know you're in charge of Georgia, but um, the one that's most popular that always gets highlighted um, is, uh, uh, I guess, uh, of Florida. I guess once, even uh, once you get people in there and they've voted and, um, and you know, we have we have the ballots now. I guess why, when after the election is done, that we can never just get uh, you know uh, some clear results from some states. Uh, I'll just point out Florida since it always comes up, <laughs> and, and I'm not sure if it's just all the sunshine and the beach <laughs> that's going on there um, that uh, you know uh, that causes. Um, 
there are always to be problems there. Um, and especially, you know, one of the things now we are in, uh, well, I would like to say a modern age, even though I feel like we're dealing with a prehistoric problems <laughs> um, is that we have technology. So shouldn't this all be just easy? Like why, why, I guess, why are we having so much difficulty with something that I believe that should be, you know, pretty straightforward and easy by now? Absolutely. So yes, I think this goes back to the, the point that people are reluctant to change so much so that they are willing to live in the stone age when it comes to using technology to streamline our elections. And so let's think about what that means. I talked about, you know, record players, radios, and moving into the TV era, how that was a difficult thing to balance back in the day. And that is what that reluctance to change means, is that when you are adopting new systems of technology to help streamline your work, to help make it safer, then you have more effective strategies to allow more people to vote. Let's think about things like disenfranchisement. States like Maine and Vermont that are, are mostly white in community and voting age population, make it possible for everybody to vote, even if you are incarcerated. They make it possible for you to vote. Let's look at, state, look at a state like Florida that did not want to make it possible for people with felonies to vote until fairly recently through several hurdles to make it possible to vote. And let's look at what that community, what those communities in Florida typically look like. They are overwhelmingly people of color, immigrant communities, Spanish-speaking folks, um, people from the Haitian community and Cuban community are there. And so we need to think of it not in a vacuum, but think of it over time. You know, the fact that technology makes it easier for a lot of things to be streamlined, particularly our elections, the fact that certain states with certain populations do make it much easier for some people to vote based on those populations that they have. And let's take it together with just the history of resistance to change. People do not want to change. And the popular majority, we'll call it that, or not even the popular majority, conventional majority. Those folks do not want to see change because they feel that it threatens their power. And we understand that from what we hear about from Governor DeSantis now about having, um, uh, you know, elections and voting police show up to ostensibly um, intimidate voters who just show up to exercise their fundamental rights. All of these things to make it more difficult, make it more difficult to get vote totals means you do not have a streamlined election administration process so that your clerks, your board of elections administrators and supervisors have a way to actually count accurate vote totals and provide them because you have not provided them the resources that they need. But added to that, you are not taking into account the needs of your community, your diverse, robust, and colorful community. You're not making it easy for them to vote, and it's intentional because we can look at other states that have a white majority who are able to surmount these high hurdles a lot easier than a state like Florida can. Mm. America has an ethics and moral problem. <laughs> um, well, um, I guess uh, bringing it just to uh, an everyday person um, and, uh, you know, a lot of times, as I was mentioning at the beginning, a lot of us feel powerless. Um, so what three ways um, do you suggest that we can help um, as just like a, a regular 
regular Joe <laughs> or like um, out there or, a, uh, or I should say a Joanne. So I'm uh, <laughs> inclusive for both men and women um, uh, that, uh, you know, that we can uh, help to prevent uh, voter suppression. For everyday humans, number one, understand our history. And when I say that, I mean our factual history. Please do not buy into misinformation and disinformation. Consider your source of information and news. So please do not rely on what Facebook and Twitter and other insular groups are trying to tell you. Look at trusted, reputable, independent sources for information about our history. Because you should learn about how our country has come to be the way that it is. You need to learn about the issues that are important to you and the communities who are most impacted by the decisions that our government makes. So let's start with truth. Number two, register to vote. Whether you feel like, ah, oh, it doesn't it doesn't count or I don't know what it's going to be like or it, it doesn't matter, register to vote and learn about the importance of registering to vote. So continue your learning journey in step number two. Number three, learn about the issues in your community Continue to find ways to uplift people that matter to you and find an anchor organization and volunteer with them. If you're in Georgia, come over to the New Georgia Project. Visit us at newgeorgiaproject.org to learn more about volunteer opportunities and the work that we do. Whether it's phone banking, whether it's text banking, whether it's knocking on doors to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with people in community to learn about their issues, you can become an advocate that way. So top three, Learn factual, reputable information about your history, about your government. Number two, register to vote and not just register, please participate. And then number three, show up and volunteer. Show up and be an advocate. Anybody can be a volunteer regardless of your capacity because what you're gonna do when you volunteer with whichever organization you believe in that believes in your issues, is you're going to support your community. You're going to learn more about your community. And if you are a white ally or someone who is privileged, who is concerned that, well, I haven't been through a lot of these struggles. I don't know. Do I belong here? Yes, you do. You can use your privilege and use your power to empower others. And if you are disempowered, guess what? Getting together with a community of people who have shared interests or maybe differing views can help to uplift you and uplift the needs of your community. There's always a way to get things better and we can do it together. That's fantastic. And now for a fun question. <laughs> um, uh, what would you say uh, that uh, a project or um, initiative or, um, uh, or I guess anything that you are most proud of um, with the New Georgia Project? I am most proud of uh, our voter protection and vote defender programs here at the New Georgia Project. So I created the Vote Defender Program, a training program designed to train all lawyers from any background on elections law and voting rights issues. So that way lawyers from any walks of life and legal professionals can support voting rights changes. So if you are someone with a legal background, if you're someone with a law degree, if you want to figure out how you can put that to work because you are either working on contracts and real estate and other things, or, or maybe you just don't know how election law and voting rights 
things work. We can provide you with that training. We can empower you to support the community and we can make you a better advocate for this nation and for this world. So please reach out to us if you are interested. Hit us up, newgeorgiaproject.org and also hit me up. But I don't know if y'all want to put my email here, but please know that it's it's free and available to reach out if anybody um, wants to discuss our work further. Okay, fantastic. Um, thank you so much um, for your time and your insight, Akima. And if you'd like to know, uh, learn more um, from Akima or, uh, of course, um, about the New Georgia Project, uh, you can find her at the newgeorgiaproject.org or, of course, if you're open to it, um, on Twitter at Akima Boats. If you have a passion for an unserved community, a social justice problem, or want to change minds, contact Project Good Work at projectgood.work to start your project of change today. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to Project Good, where we're focused on what matters. Mm-hmm.